Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, Episode 14, The Inca, Part 2. So last week, we completed a chronological recounting of the Inca Empire. We told their story, from their mythical origins, to their peak as a sprawling empire. Today, we're going to have a look at their society. This episode, we'll look at things from a zoomed out, macro level. And next episode, we'll move down into more detail. As we saw last week, the Emperor Pachacuti expanded the Inca state far beyond its original borders. As the empire rapidly grew, so too did the level of administration required to govern its disparate and spread out people. The Inca name for their empire was Tawantinsuyu, which translates as the land of four quarters. Their capital, Cusco, sat almost directly in the centre of the empire, and each of the four quarters extended right up to the city. Each one had its own capital, and its own governor who was tasked with running his territory. These governors were known as Apus, and they had control of the taxes and welfare. Initially, the government was run exclusively by Capac Incas. These were those who could claim descent from the legendary Manco Capac. It was common for emperors to leave dozens of children in their wakes, so there must have been a lot of this extended family floating around. Pachacuti found, however, that as he came to control vast swathes of territory, he was starting to run out of Capac Incas, so he created the title of Huacua Inca, to insist with the administration. To better integrate his new subjects, Pachacuti started a project of road building, and eventually there would be around 15,000 miles of roads snaking across the empire. This allowed armies and traders to move around unhindered, but it was also necessary for communication. After all, you can't govern if it takes months for your subjects to receive your orders. Along the roads, a network of stations were set up, which housed the chaskis. These were messengers who had run from station to station, carrying messages verbatim, as fast as possible. 
It's thought that thanks to this system, information could travel up to 2,000 miles and halfway across the empire in just a week. Another way in which Pachacuti encouraged integration was by mandating that everyone must speak the Inca language, Quechua. Soon everyone within their territory could communicate despite coming from vastly different cultures and language groups and living thousands of miles apart. The Inca were determined conquerors. However, they understood the need to keep subjugated people on side. While they were required to speak Quechua, they were also allowed to retain their own languages as well, and no attempt was made to destroy their cultures. Despite this relatively benevolent attitude, resistance was met with harsh repression. One tactic through which this repression was dealt was the mitma. This system involved uprooting the conquered people and moving them far away from their homeland. Doing this broke their cultural ties and their ability to organise. It usually killed their spirit and it was an effective way of stopping dissent. Loyal subjects known as mitmaconas were then brought in to make the now vacant land productive. We know that the Chachapoya were one such rebellious people and that they required reconquering twice. Up to half their population was taken away from their homelands and were spread as far away as Ecuador and Lake Titicaca. There is also evidence of a massacre at the Chachapoya's most important settlement, Quelap. Two hundred bodies have been uncovered there and they seem to have been left wherever they fell rather than buried. These actually date from the beginnings of the Spanish era and it's thought the Chachapoya may have allied with the Europeans to escape Inca rule. While there may have been this outside influence involved in the fate of Quelap, it does demonstrate how the Inca dealt with resistance. Of course, to build such an empire and enact these policies, a formidable army is needed. The Inca certainly had one. Every male between the ages of 25 and 50 was required to complete mandatory military training. Their basic military strategy had two elements. The first was to be as intimidating as possible. They would achieve this by making as much noise as they could. They would bang drums, blow conch shells and chant gruesome songs. While doing this, they would dance wildly jumping around until they'd worked themselves up into a frenzy. The second part of their strategy was to divide their army into three. One would attack head-on, while the other two would flank around each side. This may seem like a fairly basic tactic, but it worked for the Inca again and again. The front row of their army would be formed of slingshot-wielding soldiers. Next would come the general troops, armed with spears and clubs. At the rear would be the noble, specialist warriors, armed with copper battle-axes. While, as we've just seen, resistance was met with force, the opportunity to join the empire with minimal conflict was normally offered. A caravan of gifts would be given to those the Inca had identified as next to be incorporated. If this was accepted the inhabitants would be put to immediate use, whether that was as administrators or warriors. Usually, whatever the person had been doing before the Inca came along, they would continue to do, only this time 
at the service of the emperor. This gave the Inca much-needed variety in their armies, and native soldiers were encouraged to retain their style of fighting and their weaponry. One example of this can be seen in the bow-and-arrow-based cultures of the lower slopes of the Andes, down near the Amazon. The Inca lacked skill and tradition when it came to bows and arrows, and they were glad to use the skills of the people they had conquered in that part of the empire. The Inca had a similarly inclusive attitude to religion. While there was already, to a certain extent, a common pantheon of Andean gods shared between different cultures, the Inca were particularly happy to integrate the gods of conquered people into their own religion. Often they would fuse these gods with their own, forming syncretic deities which use elements of both. The Inca patron god, however, was supreme. Inti was the god of the sun, and the emperors claimed direct descent from him. When they died, it was thought that they travelled up to the sun to join him. Other important gods included Iyapa, the god of thunder and war, Viracocha, the creator god and the father of Inti, as well as Pachamama, the goddess of nature and the earth. Religion was highly organised, with a pope-like figure, known as the Uma Wilka, at the top, and Atan Wilkas beneath him, roughly filling the role equivalent to archbishops. We will examine the Inca religion in more detail next episode, when we look at how it affected the day-to-day life of its citizens. But now, let us examine how their society was structured. As we have seen, the Inca would allow the people that they brought into their empire to retain much of their culture. The social structures of these people were left more or less intact, and this was because most Andean societies were built on the same basic building blocks. These were called the Ayus. The Ayu is, in essence, an extended family group. Everyone within the group was related, and they would work together for the common good of the Ayu, sharing land as well as the responsibility of making it productive. This system probably evolved as a way to survive in the harsh Andean landscape. Creating enough food to support a population in this barren environment can be very labour-intensive. It is only through cooperation that sufficient quantities can be produced to escape subsistence farming. The territory of an Ayu would normally consist of a small community and other houses scattered around the surrounding area. At the heart of the system was reciprocity, particularly when it comes to work. A couple may assist a second couple to clear rocks from a field, and in return that second couple would be obligated to return the favour at some point in the future. These favours were measured extremely accurately, and ideally the exact same work in the exact same amount would be returned. Usually, however, it would not be just one couple assisting another. Instead, many people would assist their neighbour, and in the example of clearing rocks, each one would take charge of an individual field row. This way they could be certain that everyone's effort was equal and that an equal amount of work would be returned to each one. It makes sense then that because of this need for cooperative work, 
the Inca would not break up the Ayus of conquered people. Better to leave them intact. They were a productive way of organising people, and upending such an ingrained part of their culture would be sure to cause dissent and rebellion. The Inca state would deal with their subjects in terms of their Ayu, rather than as individuals. This, as well as the importance of labour, can be seen in the Mita system they set up. Under this, each Ayu was required to provide members to work on government projects, such as building roads or temples. It was up to the Ayu to decide who was sent, and the land of those who went would be looked after in their absence. Of course, Ayus varied in size and power, with some possessing better land than others. This would be taken into account when each Ayu's Mita obligations were calculated, ensuring a degree of fairness. This was not the only form of tax which the government levied. The Inca did not use currency, and instead trade and exchange was done by barter. Rather than taxing a monetary income which did not exist, the government would generally tax the food each Ayu produced. One third of what an Ayu produced would be shared amongst its members, as they were the ones who had produced it. Another third would go directly to the government in tax. It would be used to feed officials and nobles. The final third was also taxed, but it was put into national storehouses as a kind of safeguard against famine. Now a tax rate of two-thirds seems high, but in return the Inca made sure that no one went hungry. As well as using it to feed their officials, the government would also use the food to help those who could not feed themselves. In essence, theirs was a welfare state. I have read left-wing articles extolling the virtues of the Inca system and arguing that basically they lived under a form of socialism. Aside from this social safety net, the IU system of communal labour is another point which can be used to back up this view. Even more interesting, according to these authors, is that the leadership of the Ayus was rotational. Everyone would take their turn in decision-making roles, so power was dispersed. I will leave it up to you to decide whether there are political points to be made from Inca society. Instead, I would like to examine the belief that the Inca themselves held that was behind this holistic society and their need for reciprocity. In their world, there existed a concept called Aini. Aini is perhaps best described as a principle, and at its most basic, it simply means reciprocity. It had a spiritual meaning as well, though. The Inca believed that the world, nature, everything, was built on reciprocity. For example, you would put your effort into watering plants, helping them to survive and grow. In turn, they will reciprocate by providing you with fruit. Together, you both benefit. Aini, then, is at once a social rule about sharing, an economic strategy to grow food in difficult natural conditions, and a religious explanation of the world. It is seen as the natural order of things, so of course it was something around which they structured their society. 
It was not something they did simply to be nice, or because they believed it was moral. It was just one of the building blocks of the world, both the human and the natural one. It could also be argued that on a more regional level, exchange and reciprocity was fundamental to how agriculture functioned in the empire as a whole. John Moura was an anthropologist who coined the idea of vertical archipelagos. This came after he spent some time studying Spanish accounts of the Inca. It is, in essence, another way of getting the most out of the natural environment in terms of food. The model actually predates the Inca, and it was used by individual Ayus to help them survive and have a rich and balanced diet. Later, the Inca incorporated it into their economic system to ensure the same thing happened across their empire. As we have seen already, the Andes mountain range encompasses a huge variation in altitude. On either side of the mountains, the land reaches down to sea level. On one side you have the sea itself, and on the other you have the Amazon rainforest. Conversely, at its highest, the Andes are beaten only by the Himalayas for altitude, and there are enormous high plains which sit at over 3,000 metres. The result of this is that dramatically different foods can be produced in different places, but all these places are limited to their own speciality foods. The climates of the region have been separated into four types. The Montaña zone was down in the Amazon and the foothills of the Andes. It was where coca was produced and wood could be obtained. The Quechua regions are the next zones up, and they range from around 2,500 metres up to 3,500. Here maize, beans and fruit could be grown, which made it a highly prized area. Still higher was the Sunni, which went up to 4,000 metres. This is where quinoa, potatoes and other tubers were produced. The highest productive lands were the Puna. Here llamas and their cousins, the alpaca, the guanaco and the vicuña, were herded for meat. Not much in the way of plant life could be grown here, although as we saw in one of the previous episodes on the pre-Incan Andes, some people did find ways of making the land productive by creating raised beds and channels of water. So imagine that you are the leader of an Ayu, a small extended family living together in and around a village. As it stands, you might grow coca, you might grow maize or potatoes, or you might herd llamas, but you will only be able to do one, depending on whereabouts you live. This doesn't lead to a very varied diet, and in the case of those living down near the Amazon, you couldn't live off coca or wood. So what do you do? Well, most people would probably trade to get the goods they wanted from other people, but according to Mura, not the ancient Andeans. Instead, they created colonies at different altitudes, the mountains actually drop very sharply in many places, and you can descend hundreds of metres in just a day. Each Ayu might have its own scattered plots of land at different altitudes, and they would send different members of the family to look after them. That way the whole Ayu had all the different types of food they needed. An archipelago is a group of islands, and so the name Vertical Archipelago 
refers to the way that each Ayu would own a network of little islands scattered up and down the mountain. If you've listened to the Mesoamerican episodes of this podcast, and if you haven't, I really recommend you do. They're very interesting, I promise. You will already be familiar with the idea of non-contiguous states. Our modern idea of a nation-state with its own defined borders and territory is not the only way of organising. Or the same thing was true here. These islands weren't connected. They existed in separate little spots, and the islands of different Ayus may have been situated between each other. This meant that you may have had to cross other Ayus' territories to get to one of your islands. When the Inca came along, they expanded on this by building an extensive network of storehouses. The individual Ayus were no longer going it alone, but instead they had the centralised authority of the Inca to organise it. Now everything was encompassed in one contiguous empire. The government would store food from the different altitudes and distribute it around the population. This wasn't an archipelago so much anymore, rather more like a huge contiguous continent, but the principles of having one group grow one thing, while another grew something else, and then everyone benefiting from access to the variety of products, that remained. That brings this episode to a close. I hope you found it interesting. Next episode... We'll examine what day-to-day life was like for most Inca. If you're enjoying the podcast, please help it grow. If you could recommend it to your friends, leave a review and a rating on iTunes, or like the Facebook and Twitter pages. You would be helping me in the show out a lot. These can be found by searching for the History of Latin America podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.